Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Ricky Mujica, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. What's up, little brother? <laughs> it's great to see you. Yeah, yeah we've, you too. we've been friends for a while, so this is a pleasure to have you on the, the podcast and, and talk about your life and what you're up to. But, you know, the pleasure. first thing I want to talk about is you've got a crazy life. Like, I remember one time we were at dinner at the porch site and you were telling me about all the crazy things you did and how you grew up in New York City. I'm not gonna tell, I'm not gonna say, I'm gonna leave it up to you, but, and like, if, remind me, you like roller skated and break danced or something. And like, you've had your <laughs> boxing. Yeah. All right, tell us a little bit about your background and 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 uh, bring us up into where you're at today as a as a professional painter. Um, well, um, I, st I started painting, I, well, I've been drawing my whole life, right? And um, my mother was an artist. And when we get to the painting about my mother, of my mother, I'll talk more about her because okay. I think her story is really, really interesting. Um, when I was 15, I got into the High School of Art and Design. And Max Ginsburg was my high school art teacher because he was in the public school system at that time. He and his best friend, Erwin Greenberg. And they had this morning group where we would come at uh, 5.30 in the morning before the school opens. The janitor would come at six, open the doors, and then we'd rush up to the fourth floor uh, to paint before school. And it was a wonderful experience. And they weren't, Max was painting. He wasn't getting paid. Um, and none of us were getting any credit in fact you know we received a lot of flack because the other teachers would say would tell max and greeny max's best friend why are you teaching them this stuff they'll never make a living with this hmm. um and it was funny because we had max in the class my uh, one of my best friends was garen baker he's he he was in that group mark texero who's a famous comic artist responsible for ghost rider was in that group um, Stephen Assel was an upperclassman. Uh, Costa Varayacas, who teaches at the league, was upperclassman, lowerclassman. We had Sam Goodsell and uh, a few other. Uh, what does that um, mean, upperclassman? You mean they were higher? Upperclassman uh, means that he was older, right? So, oh, okay. Like, uh, I, I was I was a sophomore. Steve was a senior. Oh, okay. Uh, and then and then it was open at like. Like when, when, when all of these, uh, when all of us, when we got out of, when we graduated, we went to college, we would still come and paint in the morning before going to school, before going to our college. So like I went to Parsons School of Design, but in the morning I would go to the morning class and paint and then go to my college classes. And so I was, you know, older than, than some of the younger people. And Stephen Assel, when he was going to Pratt, would come in and paint. And, and it, was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, 
in the summer between my 11th and 12th grade, Stephen Assel set up a little group for the summer where we rented out a ballet room back when things cost nothing in New York. I mean, you know, New York was bankrupt and buildings were falling apart. And so he rented this little ballet room on uh, 57th Street, uh, 56th Street and uh, 8th Avenue. And we painted together for the summer. And we all paid a quarter. Or yeah, out a quarter, of town. A quarter or 50 cents. And that paid for the model and it paid for the room, which was like, you know, probably something like $3 an hour or something. Can I interject here one thing? So people who don't know some of these names, to me, it's like if you grew up in the Renaissance, going to high school, I mean, obviously I didn't have high school the way we do now, but you're going to high school and you just happen to have your teacher be Da Vinci and your classmates be Ruben, Michelangelo and David. I mean, you might, it's like, you gotta be kidding me that that lineup is unbelievable. Um, it, it, it really is. I mean, if, if, if you've never seen Stephen Assel paint live, it's crazy. And he, he was, he was already like just a, a, an incredible painter, like at 16, 17, you know, he would at the arts, he went to the art students league at 11 years old. He's studying with Ray Berger and Robert Beverly Hale. Um, you know, so he was, you know, but that, that's the quality, you know, of, of the people that were in that group. And that was just because we were painting every day. And that was the, 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 the common thread. We, every morning we painted, um, and, um, just from life and that was it. And it, it really, uh, helped us, you know, like, I mean, and, you know, in, in spite of all the other teachers in the school, you know, you know, some of them would say, Max, what are you doing? You should be encouraging them to learn, paste up some mechanicals, which well, that's gone because of Photoshop. Yeah. They would ask us, they would, they would tell them, you know, you're, you're, you know, and the other teachers would say, you'll never make a living. The funny thing is that year after year, every single person that went to that morning group, and there was only a couple of us, right? Uh, all got scholarships. And um, the other teachers would say, oh, that stuff is old hat, right? That's old hat stuff. You know, why are you doing that stuff? So we called the group, the old hat club, Yeah. <laughs> but we all got full, full ride scholarships, um, because of that group. And, 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 uh, even at a time when realism was not looked kindly upon, you know, you know, by the galleries, uh, it was really, it was really interesting anyway. So, um, that's, that's where I started painting. And that's how I started. Those are my, my beginnings. And then I went to Parsons School of Design and Parsons in Paris. Um, and then from there, I did a whole mess of other things because the life of the artist affords you lots of opportunities. The first thing that happened is that I started doing illustration because that was the only venue back then. Uh, Max was doing illustration. Well, Max started to do illustration from his teaching and then he just, he quit teaching because he was making so much money doing the romance covers. And then Steve followed and um, I don't think he likes to be remembered as an illustrator. So don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, it stops here. <laughs> you could, we all um, know it. The secret's out. <laughs> everybody knows it's an unknown yeah. secret, but, yeah. but, um, and he was the, you know, the top, right. And, um, uh, but his name was spelled a little different. So, um, 
but you know, we all became illustrators because that was the only venue for us. And so I, I began to do illustration and the illustration, you know, right off the bat paid really well um, in those days. Now, now it doesn't because now with the stock photography and, and the fact that the cover doesn't sell the book anymore, um, you know, the, you, you don't make what you were making before, which was, you know, pretty, pretty good amount for a kid getting out of college and, uh, and doing something he loves painting. But the illustration afforded me, you know, the ability to, to do all other things because I wasn't trapped in a nine to five. And so the first thing that happened was, um, that the neighborhood kids knew that back when I was younger, you know, I was involved in, you know, a little bit of the break dancing, but it was before it was called break dancing, it was called battle dancing at that time. And so they asked me, the younger kids in the neighborhood asked me if I could, um, help them. And at that time I had a studio. So I got out of college and I had a little studio on 94th street and, uh, Columbus. And you imagine what that costs now, but back then it was $125 a month rent. And, um, I had nothing but a bed and an easel hmm. and a little box with a tiny TV. So it, it was a big wide open space space that they would come to my house and break dance and, and then I would go to the clubs because they weren't old enough to go to the clubs. So I would go to the clubs and see the new moves. And then we'd come. And sometimes I'd go, there were the projects on 94th Street. I would teach, we, I would say, oh, you know, they did this move. They did this move. I don't know. And we'd try to figure it out on the marble floor of the, of the projects, <laughs> you know, it, you know, um, in the lobby. And that, you know, because I was a little older, led to uh, breakdancing tours, you know. So I toured, you know, Norway. Denmark, Sweden, uh, Africa. Parts Dang, of you must have been good. I was, I was one of the early breakdancers. It wasn't so much that I was good, but that I was old enough that I didn't need a chaperone. <laughs> I'm sure it had to be a little more. Right, than so that. it was cheaper. It was cheaper yeah. for. It yeah. was cheaper for them, for them to send me, um, and so you know, I, we did that. I came back, you know, was breakdancing some more, and then um, you know I was also always, you know, boxing, I had, you know, been going boxing and, and then I realized that my time was coming up where in those days, you know, you can only be an amateur. You can only fight in the golden gloves until you were about 25. Hmm. And then, you know, that cuts off, you weren't allowed um, to go after that. So I figured, you know, all right, so now I'm 24, let me start training, you know? And so I trained for the golden gloves and I was, you know, I ended up being a finalist, you know, court and quarterfinalists and in and, and, and placing in several you know competitions you know the golden gloves the spanish gloves the metropolitan games and um so that was my boxing career and That's it was cool. only because i wanted to meet that deadline um uh and then the funny thing is that i quit right when when the deadline when i wasn't allowed to enter any more competitions and then when i turned 34 Right after I turned 34, they moved the age up to 33. I would have liked to have stayed another year. Oh, uh, man. Wait, 24 or tw 34? 30, I was 34. When I became 34, they raised the age to 33. But I had to stop when I was 25 because that was the age when I was 25. Oh, okay, so okay. I wanted to go one more year, you know, in the competition circuit. But 
I stopped. That was another break dancing. I, um, I was a skateboarder. You know, I was one of the original zoo Yorkers. Yeah. Oh, you said you roller skated too, or something. And I roller skated. Oh, okay. I did. I was so I auditioned for. So before the roller skating, I was a skateboarder. I used to be one of the first to be riding the vertical ramps. You know, but then, but I also roller skated. I was, you know, uh, I loved, you know, I loved disco roller skating, and I, you know, I was a, I had a little job at the Roxy roller skating rink, and. You know, I did a bunch of shows. We traveled around. We went to Canada. We went to Africa. <laughs> these, little, these roller skating shows, and and then I auditioned on a whim for a show called Starlight Express. It's a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And um, the audition, they sent me to. After the audition, they said, "You know, when can you come to England? Where we're rehearsing, we're rehearsing for a show that's rehearsing in England." It's multinational and it's going to Japan for half a year and then and then Australia for half a year. And I um so they said I, I that was Tuesday. I had four illustrations to finish. Um and I said Saturday and they said, Okay, the plane tickets will be there. Um so I I I finished up my illustrations. I let my art director know that if I couldn't if they needed any changes you'd have to call Garen Baker hmm. uh, to make them. They, they, they didn't, thank goodness. And on Friday, I didn't tell anybody that I was going away um, because uh, I, I didn't believe it. I got to the airport, the tickets were there. I get to England and then I sent out postcards. I let my mother know <laughs> and my brother know that I was in Europe. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was great. We rehearsed in England for five weeks. Um, with, uh, I don't know if any of you remember, there was a movie called Willows. So we were rehearsing at Elstree Studios, which is like their Hollywood, while Willows was being filmed, which was like a gladiator type movie. So I'd go to eat and there were all gladiators and dwarfs, you know, eating with us. And it was a really, it was a really fun time. And then we went to Japan for, for about five or six months. And then we went to Australia for six months where I, you know, picked up my first wife. I've been married a couple of times. Um, and wow. then, um, and then, uh, you know, and then, the, you know, there's been other things since then, but those are the main, those are the main things. And each time I come back and art has always been my friend, you know, especially illustration, illustration had, you know, like a guy, every time I got back, I, I just jumped right in and, you know, the art directors, you know, who had become friends of mine for a lot of these major book companies, you know, uh, Scholastic, Bantam, Avon, HarperCollins, you know, were excited to hear my stories and then they would just give me work, as much work as I wanted. And so you know, that gave me freedom. So that always allowed me to keep coming back, you know, to get back in and to do these, these crazy things um, around, uh, 2005, I started thinking, I started seeing the signs, you know, uh, that illustration was going to not be as lucrative as it had been in the past. And I also was tired of doing it. I wasn't signing them anymore. I didn't want to, uh, you know, I didn't, it wasn't my work. It was, you know, uh, generic, embracing. Uh, a lot of it was the romance covers. There were sometimes I did some classics. Around 2005, I, I um, realized that I wanted to start 
painting my own stuff again. And I started going to the Art Students League to have a members uh, painting thing where you, there's no teacher. You just come in and they have a model for you on Saturdays. And Max would be there and Steven Assel would be there sometimes. And I started painting again. And after all those years, having not painted from life, it was crazy. I, uh, I you know, I had lost all my skill to paint mm. from life. It's all different so things. do you mind me asking about how old you were in 2005? I mean, I think that's. Because so, I have a lot of I, I, I have a lot of older I'm, students that are kind of making life changes. It, it's it would be inspiring. Well, I'm yeah. Well, I'm 61 now. Oh, so, so you're in your 40s. Year, I don't even know what year this. What year is this? Uh, it's 2022. So yeah, that would have been 17 so, years ago. So you were what 40, yeah. 44? Yeah. So I was already like I'm like I gotta I I gotta get out of this illustration thing. I really want to start doing my own painting. Um. You know, but I've been painting from photos for so long um, with, you know, with the illustration that, you know, you lose your skills, I think, you know, and so like, I'm, I'm, and also I wasn't, you know, like doing all these other things. Oh, I did stand up comedy for four years. Oh my gosh, you need to write a book. <laughs> that is crazy. I did, stand, <laughs> I did some stand up comedy for four years and through those four years, I barely, I barely painted, you know, um, but anyway, um, I, uh, it was, it was tough getting back into it. And I slowly started doing more and more of that. And, um, and then in 2015, when we moved here, I did my last illustration and I called up all the art directors and I, you know, I told them I wasn't going to do any more illustration. You know, I had a couple of galleries that were you know, feeding me regular work. I mean, like selling my paintings regularly. So it was really a good time. And I had someone helping me get commissions. Um, um, so that, you know, that's, that's what happened. And then the pandemic hit. And so I lost my galleries. I had an online gallery, they closed down. And the online gallery would sell prints of my work, but usually one, one painting, which was the multitasking one, you mm -hmm. know, it was, it would just, it would just, it, 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 every, every month I would get, um, orders for prints of that painting. Um, and you know, that, 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 you know, that, that's pretty much it. And then now, you know, now I'm, I'm painting, I'm teaching a lot and I, I wish I had discovered how much I love, I love teaching, uh, sooner. I would have done it a long time ago. I'm finding teaching to be incredibly rewarding. I think I get more out of it than the students. I almost feel guilty to take money mm -hmm. because, because, um, when you become a teacher, you're, you're an eternal student as well. And so all these things that I have been doing my whole life, painting, I've been painting for 45 years, all these things that I've been doing my whole life, I have to now break it down and, and find a way to teach it and to get it across. Um, and when the pandemic happened, I started teaching online as well with, you know, the Art Students League and the Florence Academy. And that made me further have to clarify my ideas, you know, about art and how to make a drawing and how to make a painting. And it, um, it's been a really, just a really rewarding path. Anyway, so I, what happened is, um, I, so I, I, when the galleries closed, it was almost kind of like a relief, except that, you know, I live in a very expensive area. 
Um, so, you know, we, there's the relief, but along with the, you know, the trepidation of, of like, oh, you know, where am I going to make more money? Where am I going to make money? Um, so that's, you know, that's part of the tough part of it. However, um, you know, I'm looking now for the next thing. And, and so I'll tell you a story. I, so recently, I, um, I don't know if any of you know horror movies, but there's a, there's a movie franchise called Insidious. Insidious 5 is the one that they just finished filming. Um, and um, there's a lot of art in it. I won't be a spoiler, but the kid is the kid who's, you know, you know, in the coma in Insidious 2, if you know the story, is now going to art school. And um, I was the art consultant for the movie, and I'm also doing all of his paintings because he's, he's very, he's supposed to be a very realistic painter and very good. And, and the paintings sort of drive the movie, you know, because he's doing one painting and that painting changes as the movie goes. Um, but it was a great, great experience because I, I was here helping with the director and they were hashing out ideas and the director is very knowledgeable about art, uh, uh, Patrick Wilson. And, uh, uh, you know, he's very into Goya and stuff and he wanted to bring some of that stuff in. And so we're in here hashing out ideas and about what the final painting should be and, and what the different paintings, you know, what's possible. And so, you know, it was a really fun time getting into sort of that dark painting. And um, especially when we were trying to figure out what the painting image that's going to go, that's going to change over the, over the course of the movie. And we were trying to figure out what that was. Um, I was doing all kinds of paintings all over the place. I was like staying up and, and, and making, you know, dozens of paintings of sketches different different ideas trying to see how far we can go you know and still teach and, and on a really funny uh side note one of the paintings that i did the director loved it's not we didn't end up using that painting in the movie but the director loved it and it started us on the trajectory towards where we ended up with but he said let me take that with me to show to the crew and he takes it home and he gets home and his dog is scared of the painting. He's still scared of the painting. He what? sends me a video. He's there is a video. Every time he holds the painting up to the dog, the dog barks and, and starts running away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that whole process of just going outside of my comfort comfort zone and, and, and doing paintings that I normally wouldn't do that I'm not known for uh, really awakened the spark in me. Um, one of the things that I that I always tell my students, you know, when they ask me, what should I be painting? What should I be painting? Right? First thing I always tell them is that they need to look at as much art as you can, as much masterwork as you can, because that gives you ideas, tells you what you do, what you like, what you don't like, and not just realism, you know, everything, abstract, you know, conceptual art, all that stuff. You never know how that affects your painting and the ideas that you'll get from these things, like I, you know, I, I, you can't tell, but there's, there's some influence in my work from the abstract expressionists of the fifties, you know? Hmm. Um, so the, you, I, I, I tell them, look at as much work as you can, try out as many things as you can. Right. 
you'll know, you'll know when you're in the right, when you're doing the right thing. When you go to sleep and all you can think about is your painting and getting back to the studio the next day. Right? Mm, Have you had that, mm -hmm. Jeff? Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Where you, where you're working on a painting and you're going to sleep and you're thinking, oh, man, do the hand like this. When you're just dreaming about the painting. Yeah, it's all you can think That's, about. You know, you're, when all you can think about and you know you're walking around doing all kinds of things and you just can't wait to get home to, to your painting, to your studio. Um, that's the paintings that you want to do, right? I tell you know you, you do the paintings that you would buy. If you know if you saw that painting at a gallery, you would starve for a month to be able to afford it, right? And that comes with you not being able to sleep mm -hmm. uh, because you're so excited about this painting. And if you have that excitement, other people will respond to that, right? Oh, well, let me let me tell you something a client said to me that you just reminded me of. He said uh, about, because he, he's been a client for the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And uh, he said to me the other day about another client who wanted to, uh, wanted to get a little overly involved in the painting process. And typically, oh, I just don't want clients to be involved at all. It's, I want complete creative control. And he said, well, let me talk to him. He says, I know from experience that if I get involved at all, you do, you do crappier paintings. <laughs> I was like, it's the truth. You can't, I That's mean, funny. you try and teach a dog how to bark and, and they're not going to bark very well. It's like, you just got to let them do what they do, right? You got to do what they do. You know, Woody Allen said, in one of the movies, Woody Allen used, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Gene, uh, Gene Wilder. And I saw an interview where they were asking him about that. How was it working with Gene Wilder? Did you direct him a lot? And Gene Wilder says, no, no, you know? Um, you know, we talked, but, but that's why you hire somebody like Gene Wilder. You know, you let him do what he does. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's, I think it's a mistake, you know, when people, you know, have you do a commission and then they sort of, uh, just, you know, they, they watch you, they, 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 they watch over you and, 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 and try to, you know, put in their too much of their own input. A little bit is okay, right? But, yeah. You know, you're an artist. Well, regarding this, with this thing, with, I was doing these paintings, I'm, I'm finding that, I was finding that I couldn't sleep. I could just, all I could think about is, you know, after, especially after the dog was scared of my painting, <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And um, so now I know that um, I need to go to the next level because I haven't felt that feeling in a while, you know, so... Um, when I was doing, you know, the, the, the painting of my wife, you know, putting on the makeup and stuff, I couldn't, you know, wait to get back to the painting and the painting of my mother, you know, there were, I had so many other things to do and the painting was just there. I just wanted to get back and I'll tell more about that story. Um, but, but I hadn't felt that in a while. And so I, I know now that I need to, um, explore what's happening next before I get locked into another gallery. I have a couple of options with the gallery, with a couple of galleries, but um, I, I don't, not until I um, really see what, you know, where I'm going to go with this. You know. So is it, that is it sense. that you don't want to get in a gallery and have work that you're not passionate about and then sort of get stuck yeah. doing that kind of work? Yeah. 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 Um, 
um, you know, that's, that's, if that happens, you know, the really good galleries sort of let you do what you do. Mm -hmm. They guide you a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But a lot of the galleries, they, you know, they know their clientele, right? And, and, and if you start deviating, they're like, no, 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 do more of this, right? And yeah. it doesn't matter how much, how much you hate doing that, you know, that's what sells. And, and, and you get addicted to the money as well, right? Um, um, that's what they sell, right? Because who knows what, what sells? I don't, I don't believe anybody really knows uh, what can sell in this art world we live in is really crazy. I mean, when you consider that Mer d'Artiste, do you know Mer d'Artiste? Mer mm -mm. um, d'Artiste. So, you know, Piero Manzoni, you know, a, uh, you know, a conceptual artist from the 70s, uh, shit into tuna fish cans. 80 Gross, of them. man. And canned them and, and named it Mer d'Artiste, which is French for artist shit. Right. And um, those those cans, you know, there are 80 of them. Every one of them is over $100,000 worth more than any of my paintings. But there's only 79 now because one of them blew up in a Dutch museum because they didn't have a temperature well, control. Come world. on. People and, are paying for and, cans and, of cans of crap. Yeah. $100,000. Of crap. Well, not only that, the 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 the, the owner who donated the the camp that blew up to the to the Dutch Museum, yeah, right. Sued the museum and 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 came off with a you know settlement of like a hundred thousand oh. dollars because he 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 blamed the museum for not uh, controlling the temperature in the room where he had this little can of shit. And so, you geez, don't know if business gets sell. bad, I'm gonna stop flushing for crying out loud. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, we're making making bottles of pee or something. Um, um, but, but, you know, the, you know, in some ways, some people will get a little bit discouraged by that, but I get enc encouraged by it. Right? Why is that? Because, because it actually, it, it actually shows you that nobody really knows what sells, right? Hey, well, what sells true. is what you're passionate about, right? Um, and if, if, if I'm going to be, um, doing, sitting down, doing work that I'm just not, that I don't care about. I'd rather be, you know, maybe doing decorative finishes on walls or painting house, house painting, you know, walls, because I did it for the longest time. I did, you know, the, the romance covers. Um, I did the romance covers for a long time and I, and, you know, I was in, sometimes embarrassed to say that I did them and I never signed them for 25 years. I didn't sign them and they were just, it was just, it became just the work, just the that's why my skills deteriorated. It just became the bare minimum. And I'll give you a funny story. So back in, I guess, 80, uh, 86, in 86, Adnair Drum was like God to me. I had seen his, his show in, in 1984, the first show in, 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 in New York. And we were all blown away. All of us from the morning group, we just kept going down there. We're brought, you know, Adnerjum in those days was just amazing. And he, to me at that time, he was Ghana because here I am thinking nobody can do and make any money, any make a living doing the actual work that they loved because we're all doing illustration. Um, you know, here Adnerjum comes and proves us all wrong. Not only is he, you know, big, like the show was an incredible success, you know, 
and his shows in Norway were, in spite of you know government opposition opposition to what he did, because the you know the people in charge of the arts weren't into the that old stuff, right? Kit mm-hmm. kitsch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you know he never got much, but he still you know like fifty thousand people would go see his shows, uh, the shows of his work, and and so he's so now here I am, now I'm a young break dancer. And I'm in Norway, breakdancing, where my God, my hero lives. It was like a God for me at that time mm-hmm. in those days. And um, turns out that our one of the handlers who helped us with costumes and stuff, and helped to drove us to you know to our venues, was friends with Adnejum. And I had one little painting, a self-portrait, a print of a self-portrait that I did when I was 19. I think I have it over there. Maybe I'll show you. Um, I did, uh, that I did when I was 19. And then everything else were reproductions of book covers. And he said, I showed Ahmad um, Nedrum the print of your painting. And he's, he, he's, he loves it. He's love to meet you. Hmm. And I... I backed out on it. I didn't because I was so embarrassed. I was too embarrassed to tell him, you know, because he said he'd like to see more of your work. Uh-huh. We didn't have the internet in those days. So it's only what I had with me, right? Which were the reproductions. You know, I wasn't going to show Adnedge on my book covers. You know, I, I I was just too embarrassed to meet him up, meet up with him. And, um, you know, small thinking on my part not to bring some of the work that I had been doing at that time, some of my own work. Uh, but you know, I like I, what I what I believe is that what Adnajam would have told me had I gone to meet him is stick to your guns, you know, do what you do and, and put your passion into. And I wish I had, right? I wish I hadn't just gone uh, for the easy money hmm. and really, you know, pursued, you know, what I wanted to do. You know, the, at that time. Uh, and, and, and that's just a lesson, right? That, 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 but all know. the great painters were doing it. I mean, you said yourself, Stephen, a sales and illustrator. Yeah. Um, I mean, but Steve, Steve had the best, Steve had the best attitude about it. Right. I mean, Max didn't do any or more of his own work while he was doing the illustration. Right. It would, you know, uh, he, cause he was, you know, he was uh, doing a lot of the work, but Stephen had the best attitude about it. First of all, he didn't use his real name, hmm. right? Um, second, he he made it a he dedicated Saturday all day, eighteen hours Saturday to work on his own paintings. So it didn't matter whether you had a deadline, you had unfinished work, you had anything else to do. Saturday was sacred. He would work on his own paintings. And then he was teaching as well, uh, where he was, he would bring a big canvas in and, you know, he would paint, he would teach by painting, you know, and, and so people watching him paint. Um, so he built up a body of work. I mean, it's amazing. If you dedicate one day to your own work, uh, how you begin to build a body of work, you know, it, it happens, you know, and then you can get out of doing the stuff that you don't want to do. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's inspiring. Right? Yeah, because I mean, there's a lot of people that have studied with me in the past that 
struggle with the idea of becoming an artist because they're like, I just don't have time. I have a full-time job. I, I have yeah. kids. I have a, a spouse. Like, how can I, I'm like, just, I recommend this book called Atomic Habits to all these students. I can't remember the name of the author, but, um, because I'm a believer that just doing a little bit, just a little bit consistently really adds up. It's better. It's yeah, yeah. exactly. And Steve was very consistent, very consistent. And uh, as a matter of fact, when Ad Nedrum came to the city, uh, you know, for his show, uh, he showed, he saw Steve's work and said, Steve in a cell is the greatest American figurative artist, right? <laughs> you know, he's the greatest figurative artist, but Steve in a cell is the greatest American, um, which, you know, I, I believed too for, you know, um, and I still believe he's one of the, you know, one of our modern Rembrandts, you mm -hmm. know, uh, yeah, so, 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 you know, that, that's basically it, but it, it is, I think, you know, what I would tell myself if I was 25 again would be, you know, stick to your guns, do the paintings that you want to do. Uh, you know, I, I'm seeing paintings that I did when I was, you know, 21 and, and 20 that I was doing when I was still trying to do my own work that the galleries were calling conventional. Mm -hmm. Now I'm seeing a lot of people having success uh, doing the same thing that I was doing then. Uh, I see them now having great success. And part of me is a little jealous. Part of me is a little very excited for them, you know. But it's also exciting for me because, it, you know, everything that I see reinforces the fact that that you just, you just got to be true to yourself. You got to do the work that you believe in and you got to put passion into it and you got to um, uh, make the paintings that you would go hungry for to own. And if yeah. you do that, other people are going to find you, and especially now with the internet where the gatekeepers are gone. Uh, they're not completely gone, but they're, it's a lot, it's a lot softer now. You know what I mean? Um, if you have, you get a million followers on Instagram, the galleries will be beating down your door rather than the other way around. And that's the big difference now from what we had in 1985, where you could not get anywhere without a gallery, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and it had to be a good gallery. Yeah. I feel like the internet has um, leveled the playing field and not only that, but I think it's, um, I think it's made it so that the public gets to decide now what's great art because it used exactly. to be you mentioned the gatekeepers it used to yep. be that there were the 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 blue chip collectors and and dealers yep. would say would the dealers would tell them what was good and yeah, then they'd believe them and buy yeah and buy it but now the internet is saying wait a minute here's all this other stuff out there and people are like oh so i don't just buy crap in cans you mean there's other options <laughs> And yeah. it's, it's changing the world. I, I think well, that's the well, only reason realism is coming back. Yes, yes. I yeah. was just going to say that. I agree with you 100%. I think, I think the fact that the people can help decide what's good now is the reason that we have this whole realist movement. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons that this whole realist movement is taking over because the people are voting, mm -hmm. voting with their clicks. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes it's not always the best thing to let the mass decide. 
what's good, right? Because then that leads to the least common denominator. But the great thing is that there are enough people in the world to find your people, mm-hmm. to find the people that believe in, in your work, you know? I've had plenty of gallerists tell me that my work is is um, too personal, hmm. right? I had one prominent gallerist who's, who you know the gallery, but I'm not gonna mention it on a recorded there. Um, but, you know, to, told me that, um, my work is too personal, and, and as a result, it looks amateurish. Oh, shit. That's and, just and the that's stupidest the, thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And that's so, what I so, love you know, about your work. Yeah. That, well, the, you know, it's one of the things that I, so one of the things that I've learned is that you got to take all of that stuff with a grain of salt, right? There mm-hmm. are enough people who like my work. And, 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 um, you know, to make me happy when I was younger, when I was 25, you know, uh, people would ask, you know, to see my work and I would show them and they go, oh, you do that old stuff. Um, <laughs> and it was like, ah, it was like a stab in the chest, but you know, now with age, it, you know, it doesn't bother me. You know, you, you know, there, there are people buying my work. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy for that. You know, my big problem is that some of the paintings get, you know, get too careful. Too, I care too much about. I can't sell. I don't want to sell. I don't want to sell that. the one on my body. You know, and so mm. the paintings that keep that keep me up at night because I want to work on them are also the ones that make it very. They, they become like your baby. Mm-hmm. You know, they and you don't want to sell them. And and when you do, like I sold the one of. A multitasking one that you like. Yeah, that's um, one of my favorite paintings ever. Not just of yours. Uh-huh. Not just of yours, just in general, just of anybody's. Oh, thank you. Well, my wife nearly killed me when she found out I sold it. You must have had a hard time selling that. Um, well, a funny story with that one. I was working on it. The painting, and then I got stuck. It's, I'm going to pull it up. One. I know we want to talk about your mother, but I'm going to pull that one up right there. Go ahead and you go ahead and finish your thought. That's the so one, right? I, yeah, that's the one, right? So I was working on that painting, but there there were just too many problems. And then halfway through the painting, we moved. Um, and so the bathroom and her image in the bathroom, I had to do in another house. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so like it was, it was... Um, you know, it was, uh, uh, so I was unhappy with it. There were, there were lots of things I was unhappy with. Um, you, I I was really loving painting this painting, but then, you know, you begin to see things that you think are wrong. Like for instance, um, the arm that's holding the baby from the elbow to the wrist is just too short, right? Um, and it almost looks like it's, you know, like she has no hand, like she's amputated to me. Right. And, hmm. and, and there are problems, there are problems in it. You know, like I, I wasn't sure when we moved to the new place, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that stuff in the foreground that we had in the old place. Um, and then I didn't have it and I didn't have pictures of it or anything. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that now that we're in a different place and I know it needed, it needed something there. So there, you know, there, there were lots of problems. So I, I just sort of put it down and I, 
I would have taken it further if we had stayed in that house. But uh, this collector who's bought several of my paintings kept, would come to my, every time he's, he's Dominican, he's Dominican from the Dominican Republic. And every time he would come to my house, he would look to see, he would see what I'm painting. And, and he loved this painting and he wanted to buy it off the easel. And I said, no, 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 no. There's too many problems with it. I still got to fix it. And he kept, you know, bugging me. But I didn't, you know, I was so busy at that time. I was doing, you know, a tremendous amount of work. And I didn't know what to do next to fix that arm. I didn't know how I was going to do that. Um, um, and, the, and I hadn't found a, an adequate solution for that foreground. So that's why it's all so unfinished. And he came back. It was four months later, and I hadn't done a stroke on it. I hadn't painted anything on it. And he said, let me get it. Uh, let me take it like that. I said, I said, it's not finished. He says, you can do another one. I said, I tell him everything is wrong. Just do another one. And I said, I said to myself, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll do another one. So I sold it to him for way too little. Right. Huh. And you know, he took it, but I never. That arm still started, doesn't bother me. I, now that you mention, even though you mention it, it still doesn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, but you know, you're an art, as an artist, it, it bothered me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, like wasn't sure how I was going to fix it, right? But then, you know, when he said that, I said, you know what, I'm going to start it. And I tried starting it again uh, several times. I have several starts of it. Um, um, literally working from this mm. painting, from the, from the print of this painting. Mm. Um, I, I tried to, but I don't, it's not the same when you're working off a print of a painting. I don't know if you've ever had to duplicate any of your mm. paintings. Not in that way, no. It's just... It's just not fun. Mm -mm. So like I never, I never, I never followed through with it. Um, but it's, this, this painting has been good to me over the years. It's sold a lot of prints. Um, every time a breastfeeding group or something comes across this painting, all of a sudden I know it because I get a ton of prints. But now I don't, my online gallery closed and I'm trying to find a new place that makes beautiful prints like this. The place that I was using made gorgeous prints, but they closed down for the pandemic. And, um, you know, so and that's on my hmm. to-do list. Cause I've, I've gotten several orders this month. I took several people reaching out to me, asking me if they can buy a print this hmm. month. From yeah, this. I bet. It's, it's funny. They don't care about any other painting, just this one. Well, it's just such a beautiful portrait of motherhood. That's all. I mean, it reminds me when my wife, when our kids were little, it's just, uh, yeah. it's just a beautiful, beautiful image, beautiful, uh, subject. All right. Well, let's look at, uh, the other painting you wanted to start with of your mom. I want to hear a little bit more about this painting. So, so, so this painting, war zone, and it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's a tribute to growing up in 1970s, New York where all the buildings around me were burnt down or there were abandoned lots. And it was high crime. New York was the highest crime, uh, fourth highest in the nation. And, um, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it, it was just a, you know, a tough time, you know, in New York, but, you know, in those days we had family, everybody knew everybody in the streets. So it was, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent what you think about when you think about the 70s New York. Um, this painting, it, it started out with when my daughter was born. That's my daughter on my mother's lap. So when my daughter was born, I uh, um, 
my wife and I were both working, you know, really hard, doing a lot of work. And so my mom would come over to my studio uh, every day, you know, around, you know, two o'clock um, to watch my daughter while I tried to get some work done because I was the, I was the one, my wife was going off to work and I was the one at home with the baby, but I, you know, needed work to get work done too. So my mom would come to help out and Violet, my daughter Violet would fall asleep on my mother's lap. And then I, you know, one day I said, you know what, why don't you, you uh, why don't you pose? Like, uh, we'll have you, we'll have her fall asleep on your lap. And every day you come, I'll paint for an hour or two or however long she sleeps, um, you know, and my mom's, you know, was cool with that. So I did uh, the painting, most of the painting uh, of her and my daughter, no, no background or nothing. I was finished. I did um, uh, on her, everything was finished except there was no chair. Like, you know, I hadn't painted the chair and her dress was just yellow. Right, because uh, in this case, the way I handled the, um, the the pattern on the dress was that I painted all the form first, the yellow of the dress, and then when it was dry, I glazed the pattern. Oh, it doesn't look and, glazed. And the, it's interesting. Yeah, the pattern is is glazed, and then you know a little bit of paint as well, you know. But um, but yeah, so you know uh, the the I had the baby was finished. She was mostly finished, pretty much finished, uh, except for the dress. There was no chairs, no background. Um, and then my mom got cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. And she couldn't, she couldn't come and help us. And for the next two years, it was, you know, a constant battle with the health insurance, uh, trying to get them to pay because, you know, apparently this was her second time getting cancer. The first time she had colon cancer, this time there was a sarcoma, but the first time she maxed out her insurance <sighs> and so getting them to pay pay was a full-time job with the health insurance and so the next two years it was that so she didn't you know i had to put the painting aside and then my mom passed away from cancer from the cancer mm. and i put the painting away and didn't think much about it um and then we moved in 2000 that was what year was that i think that was like 2009 2000 nine yeah 2007 to 2009 is when i started it and then um years later when i 2015 we moved to montclair because i got this beautiful studio that we have here and when i was unpacking you know my wife saw the painting and said you know you really need to finish that painting and i said yeah you're right so i just started to think about it a lot well i i have my mom several photos of my mom in that dress um, because I was one of her favorite dresses and that's what she would put that on when um, she would come over you know to help with my daughter or when she was cleaning around the house she would that was her her cleaning dress and so um, I had so I, I finished up the dress from that um, I, I, I we had that chair so I finished up the chair I set up that chair from life the chair and the pillow um, and then I did the background and the books. And so everything in there has, has meaning. So first of all, you'll see that my, my mom, you'll see the cross behind my mom's head, right? And that's the meaning. And, and then you'll see, if you look closely, you'll see on her forehead, um, she's got the cross from the Palm Sunday or Ash Wednesday, right? 
So this is something I always remembered about them. Oh, so yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's very subtle. Yeah. yeah. It's very subtle. I think I'm maybe too subtle. People think it's... I don't know. Painting. I think it's great. Wow. So so because um, in those in the 70s, and so the, the baby is sort of a metaphor for me or for for every child, you know, the parent looks after, you know, and or the grandparents look after while the parents are away, you know, like they're working and stuff. And for my mother, um, God was kind of like a babysitter. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. What I mean is that uh, the only way she would let us go out because New York was crazy was that, you know, she would pray for God to protect us and would put, you know, she would be, we would have, you know, she would have the Virgin Mary by our bed, you know, all kinds of things. But so that's that's what that's about. That was the protection and and why we have that sky, you know, with the, you know, sort of the God overlooking. Right. Mm -hmm. um, um, the 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 background, as I said, that's seventies New York, all burnt down and and you know abandoned lots. The seventies of New York that I grew up in, um, and and then there are you see on the left there are books, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the books, my mom, my mom went back to college, went to college. When she was 65, it took her 15 years to graduate. What? Wait, she so she graduated at 80? Yeah. Wow. And then she died at, she died at 86, you know. But what she, an inspiration. But she, she, she um, went back to college, and it was the problem. It took her 15 years because she kept failing classes, right? But she did it, right? And, um, you know, she got a lot of criticism quite a criticism from the other old ladies. Um, and they would say, oh, what are you doing going to college? Or what do you think you're going to get a job? You know, and my mother said, I don't care about that. I just care. I, all the thing I care about is that in my small town, nobody went to college. And so when I die, I want to be buried with my diploma in one hand and my ring in the other. <laughs> um, and, 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 and she... Um, she finished. She, she she finished college. It was one of the proudest moments of her life. And so she kept the college books, and they were always there on the table like a trophy. And then that that little pencil box above the book, that wooden pencil boxes, was an Indian artifact. You know, because she's you know from uh, Dominican Republic, but you know she's I, I I'm pretty sure she's got Indian blood, or she she at least thinks so. Thought so. So that's like you know native. The Dominican Republic hand carved little pencil box that she used, um, and and uh, so you know that that that's what the books signify, and uh, you know, and then you see the you know the on her lap is a sort of uh, a wool a, a hand embroidered uh, sort of uh, uh, like a scarf yeah, blanket. Yeah, she made herself. But she, it, it, all the stuff that she made herself, and you see the pillow behind her head is the same. She made herself. She knit, in, and it all looked like very Native American Indian, but it was, you know, very Dominican Indian uh, stuff, you know, hmm. or, or Dominican Native stuff that she would mix up. That had something to do with it, right? My mom was very uh, interesting case. Uh, was very interesting because um, 
when she was 19, there was a guy, she, she comes from a really small town in Dominican Republic, uh, a tiny, tiny little town. And um, nobody had gone to college, you know, like they, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that kind of town. But then uh, uh, this guy came, he had, he had studied art and he, he, had, he had learned, he had studied art in, in Europe and he was a professional artist and he was, you know, a gringo who, um, you know, gringo means, you know, an American or a white person, right? Who, uh, he found that little town and set up, you know, because it was cheap, he set it up as his studio to do his art. And what he would do is he'd have all the, the kids from the neighborhood would, you know, would clean up his studio and, and, and just, you know, do stuff like that. And in exchange, he would give them art lessons. And so my mother became his best student. She's, I still have some of the paintings. They were really good. Hmm. And when she was 21, he submit his, uh, he submit his, her work to, uh, to some, you know, uh, academy in, in Europe. I'm not sure where, right. In somewhere in Northern Europe, um, he submitted her paint, her work and they offered her a full ride scholarship. Wow. Um, but her mom. When she told her mom, her mom says, no, no, you, you, you're not doing that. You're going to stay here. And instead of learning how to do art, you need to learn how to cook and clean so you can get a man. Mm. And I uh, wouldn't let her go. And she held that her whole life, you know, she, she, that, 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 that pain that she wanted to be an artist. Um, when my brother's father, my brother had a different father. And he left when my brother was about two months old. And that's another story there. But he left when he was about two months old, and he was the love of the my mother's life, um, for you know several reasons. But he was the love of her life, and when he left, she pulled out a box, an old box of paint, paint box that's like it was an old box from like nineteen seventeen or something like that, right? And these old rusted tubes of paint that. She, you know, you had to pry them open, but the paint was still good, believe it or not. Um, uh, and she began to paint again. And so she spent the last years of her life painting. And so she was always very supportive of me and my brother. My brother is, um, he's an abstract, a graffiti abstract. That's what he calls it, urban abstract. Hmm. Um, and he, um, he's in a blue chip gallery. So my he mom is. was very, yeah. Whoa. So my mom was. Yeah, the, the gallery where my brother, George San Juan Murillo, where he exhibits, um, they sell Chagall, uh, Miro, they have, they have a couple of Rembrandt prints, they sell Picasso, they sell Helen Frankenthaler. And every time they do a catalog, they put his paintings in with those people. Are you the only two so kids? He, Her only two kids? Yeah, we're the only two. Yeah. So you both ended up artists. How about that? We both ended up artists. Uh, wow. My mom was very, very very encouraging of that. My brother came, uh, you're talking about making a change late in your life. My brother was a, um, you know, a concierge. And he was a, he had been doing graffiti his whole life, but he never thought about selling it or anything. And then around, uh, I guess, what year was that? Um, uh, around around this time, around 2009, about 2008, something like that, my wife, who was 
at that time had just finished working for Diane von Furstenberg and now was the creative director for Rachel Roy, asked my brother if she could see some of my brother's graffiti. And he gave her a bunch of the books and she loved it. And she took them and made prints for dresses, uh, graffiti dresses. And they were very popular. They set a whole trend because nobody was doing that. And Macy's hired my brother to do the store windows, five, six windows, right? And and then that, that began his career, right? Like, hmm. um, and it was at that same time that um, he, uh, it was at that same time that he lost his job. Um, but now he had all these commissions uh, to do because of Rachel Roy and, and stuff. And, and then for the fashion line, you know, for the promotion of it, they did this whole thing. And my mom, when she passed away, the, we made a deal with the landlord because she was in a Mitchell Lama apartment government subsidized apartment um, we may and the, that 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 building had become private now right mm -hmm. um, we made a deal with the landlord that he could stay there rent free for six months and um, then and, and some money which he, he pushed to his kids college fund um, and um, in that time he got his career started he used my mom's old apartment as his studio um, but then, you know, in, uh, I don't know, around 2015 or something, he's there, he starts dating this, uh, woman from England because he's going around doing all of these lectures, but not really making a lot of money. Right. And he, he starts dating this woman, um, from England who's financially well off. Um, you know, she's a businesswoman, um, and they're having this long distance relationship and she says, Hey, you know, George, I have this uh, business meeting where, where, where we're pitching something, you know, to make this big deal in Boston, you know, do you want to come? And he says, sure. So now here my brother is, he's sitting there uh, having dinner the first night. Uh, he had brought a bunch of his work because um, his girlfriend wanted to show her friend, her business partner, my brother's work, you know, maybe he might buy something or whatever. But he, so he's got all this, you know, works with, with him and stuff and clippings and because he's been in, you know, news, he's got a lot of news clippings and stuff. And, um, and they're sitting there strategizing over this million dollar deal. And my brother's feeling this small. He's feeling like nothing. He doesn't have enough money to even walk into that restaurant. It was a big five-star restaurant in Boston. And he doesn't even have enough money to walk into that restaurant, let alone eat there. He's, he, you know, um, He's feeling really like down at the bottom of the barrel. He, he owes several months rent. Right. And, um, you know, and now he, I mean, he's, he's in his forties, right. Um, you see may he's making this change in his forties. Um, so, you know, he, he has no money. So he's feeling terrible. So, so they're on the way home, they pass by that big street of galleries on in Boston it has all the galleries. And his girlfriend says, hey, look, look at all those galleries. You should check them out while we're doing our meeting and, you know, look and see other people's artwork. And he said, oh, yeah, right. And he made up his mind. I know what I'm going to do. So when they went off to do their meeting, he grabbed all the work that he had brought with him. And he decided he was going to knock on every door on every gallery. Hmm. And he started the first gallery. He went in. I am an artist. This is my work. He said some of the galleries, one gallery practically spit on him. Oh, some of ouch. them laughed, laughed at him. They laughed. They laughed, literally laughed at him. Um, uh, 
for being so cocky to think or, or so so dumb to think that he could just walk into a gallery and that that's how he was going to get into the gallery. Um, some of them wouldn't even open the door when they saw him, you know, knocking on the door. They wouldn't even unlock the door. They would just, no, no, right? Um, but he goes to one gallery and you and I probably would not have gone that gallery because in the window, they had Picasso. <laughs> they had, you know, like there's a high-end blue chip gallery that is selling originals, you know, Helen Frankenthaler, you know, Robert Motherwell. And he walks in and strikes up a conversation. He walks in, doesn't know anything. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah, and he strikes up a conversation with with them and um Okay, let me ask you this. Let me ask you is he clueless about the quality of the work or is he really that confident? He was it's not that he was confident, it's that he was down at the bottom. He just, he was doing whatever he could. He was just desperate. He hit rock bottom. He hit desperate. rock bottom. He, okay. he was so embarrassed sitting at the dinner table and not having a cent in his pocket. But it's still, you, you know have to, I mean? it that still takes just, something to walk into a gallery with Picasso in the window. Yeah. Well, it, it takes hitting rock bottom. Yeah. He, I guess so. Yeah. He's kicked out of his house. He's, he's kicked out of his apartment. He has back on his rent. He's got no money to eat. Right. Like, I mean, he's like, you got nothing to lose, you know, and and huh. it's um, inspiring. But he he goes in, strikes up a conversation, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, we've been thinking about graffiti artists. What is your work?" And they and they, oh, that's good work. And he's showing them clippings. He's he's got clippings. He's got a a one <laughs> when he was like ten years old or eleven. You know, he did because I started out doing graffiti, mm-hmm. right? And so I used to take him with me. He was I was babysitting him. He's seven years younger than me. And like I'm 14, I'm going up to the train yards to bomb the trains, you know, and I'm taking him with me and he's seven years old, <laughs> right? And that's how he got into graffiti. But then he he kept on. I stopped when I met Max um, and I started to do, you know, this kind of painting. But he he kept on, right? And he was bombing all the whole neighborhood. And so there's a little wanted poster for him. And it's a it's a, it's a police drawing of him kind of looks like him too right a police drawing of him and it says wanted for graffiti george <laughs> oh my gosh that's good so he had he showed them that he's showing them that he's they're like oh this is great you know um and they took his his car his number and, and then he didn't hear about it from them for a month he could he finished up went to every gallery and of course he's demoralized at the end except that you know he had a nice conversation with that one gallery a few months uh, about a month later they, you know, they contact him and say, hey, would you like to, you know, submit a painting on consignment and see how we do? Um, and he says, sure. So he does. And then they sell. It sells. Um, and then he, you know, they ask him for a couple more. He brings them five paintings and they pick two, two paintings out of the five. And they sell both of those. Right. And then um, the next time he starts this relationship with them. And um, at one point, you know, they're they're selling his work regularly. You know, at that time, you know, at that, they're selling it at a low price point, but they're selling it, and and you know, they're putting him up with Chagall and stuff. And then all of a sudden, they stop selling it, selling his work. And this is where my brother had to learn, you know, had to grow up because he started to get cocky. That look, I'm in a gallery with with you know, Chagall, and um, and then 
you know, he was like, oh, screw them. If they're not going to get me, if they're not going to send me work. And then he realizes that, no, he needs them. So he goes and says, you know, what's going on? What's up? And he sits down and has a talk. He says, look, you know, you're getting a little bit, the work that you're doing, right? You're, it's not so much the work. It's just that you grow, you're okay. Because what he was doing is he's grabbing, you know, uh, he's finding like paintings in the street and then just painting over like some abandoned canvas or or on a piece of wood or cheap canvas from the store. Hmm. I said, you can't do this. This is a high-end gallery. You can't be, this is embarrassing. And so we, 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 we stopped on your work. And he said, well, look, give me a chance. You got to understand that didn't want, he didn't finish high school, you know. I didn't finish high school. I don't know. I didn't do, go to art school, you know. And I said, you know, we'll give you another chance. So he goes in and gets the best canvas, you know in the big thick stretches and I show him I teach him how to stretch you know big canvas and he begins to stretch them and do the big one and all of a sudden they're, they're selling again and and they're like one of his big they just had a show of his work he's he's up at the forty fifty thousand dollar mark and they think by next year he'll be in like a hundred thousand dollar mark and he just had a show with them um like uh, I think they sold like nine paintings or something all at forty, um, fifty thousand. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, you know, he doesn't get all that right because oh yeah, he gets twenty, twenty-five probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still, um, that's they also awesome. they also the gallery has an interesting setup um, that I had never seen before. Uh, they has uh, they have brokers, you know, like you know you have real estate brokers to go and help you rent an apartment, right? They have mm -hmm. brokers too that they also get a piece of the commission. In oh other words, man! Their whole job—they're making money selling paintings. They go out. They're brokers, like the same way you have a real estate broker, yeah. same way you have a, a loan broker. They have painting brokers, right? Yeah. Does that come out like of his cut? His fifty percent or their fifty percent? It comes out of the whole thing, of the whole, you know, both sides. So was right. it? So so what's the what's the distribution? 33, so 33, 33? I don't I don't know what, I don't know what his actual split is, but huh. um, the That's... the broker gets a percentage, and then the gallery takes half of what's left over. Ouch! So so, however, you know, by next year they're going to be sell they're selling his paintings, you know, for a hundred thousand. That's amazing. Um, and and they're they're trying to get them in the right places. Every time they sent out a catalog, the last catalog, they had their twenty five year anniversary, and they had big full page spread with my brother and his work on one side and Miro on the other. <laughs> he's uh, got to be Miro's on cloud nine. Good for him. He is, and he's he's like the happiest I've ever seen him. He's eating healthy, you know. Uh, but you know, you got to give it to him, and 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 it just shows you. Um, so much of this is taking that step, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine, you can think about your your own um, trajectory, right? And so much of it, I'm sure, um, was you taking the step to go out and find your commissions. You know, uh, uh, so much of it is that you can't just sit in your in your house and wait, and you got to be willing to embarrass yourself and to get and and to be told no. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, let me let me um ask you about this painting. Um, did you sell it? No, because this this one is not for sale. So this okay, is one of the ones I'm that, so glad to hear that. It is. It's up. It's up. It's actually up at the Art Students League right now. Oh, I think this is. Oh, it just it just went down this weekend. 
So how was it, because your mom had already passed, was it difficult to paint after she'd passed? No, well, she, I, I had done, when she was still coming, I'm like, you have to re realize that before she got the cancer. No, 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 I understand. Was... I mean, I'm, I mean, when, when, so you finished oh. her, you finished her, but then you had to do the chair in the background, the books. Yeah. Was it difficult so, to go back there emotionally and work on this painting uh, after she had passed? Well, enough time. It, it would have been almost impossible right after she had passed. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do it. But, but now we're talking about she passed away in 2009. And I got to this painting back around 2015, 2016. Oh, okay. Maybe around 2016 is when I started like to plan it. But by now there was, it was a, it was out of love, right? Right, right. So there's more, there's more care in this than, than a lot of my paintings, you know, because every inch of it, you know, there's love in it, right? It's like the, the, the there's the, you know, like, a, it, it, this is one of those paintings where like, um, I couldn't wait to get back to it the next day. And I can't tell you how many iterations the background went through before I settled on that, um, which I had to make up out of my head, right? Pretty mm -hmm. much. Um, um, so, you know, there are lots of, lots, lots of, it, it went through lots of changes as I was thinking about it, but it was, it was more of a work of love. It was never meant for sale. Right. But it was, you know, I, I think in this, in this business, I think you, you have two kinds of work that you need to do, right? You need to do the work that, that you are going to sell, that you plan on selling. And you need to do the kind of work that I, that you think will get people to click or to notice you. Mm -hmm. And the funny, the funny thing is that um, the work that sells will never get clicks. And the work that gets people to notice you will never sell <laughs> just generally, <laughs> but it's more likely that's the work that might end up in a museum. If, if, if you should be so lucky, mm -hmm. um, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the, 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 it's, it's, it's a funny catch 22. So you have to do the, you know, two kinds of work and it's, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting business model. You know, you, you do work that you are, that you care about that you, but you know, that you're not, it's not, uh, in other words, you do work that you can allow yourself to sell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Put it that way, right? Because I'm not saying you, you have to do any less in terms of quality, right? But you know, but then you need to do the work that's going to bring eyes over to you, right? That's a very important thing. Um, there's a there's another one, yeah. How, the, the right next to two two to the left of that next one, that next one over. Yeah. So this one I, I would like to talk to you about a little bit because this one is has a lot of meaning as well. This was my aunt who pretty much raised me. You know, my mom was my mom was working to a single mother, two boys, making five thousand dollars a year right? oh my gosh. in New York, and two jobs, five thousand dollars, and that's with two jobs, right? And um, you know, from the time, you know, my, my, my thing was, was, uh, my father, uh, you know, my, my mother left my father or they left, they, they broke up, you know, uh, about a month after I was born. Um, and, uh, 
So I, you know, I didn't have a father either. My mom was a single mom, but in those days, in the sixties, you know, I was born in 61, um, a woman didn't have many avenues for work to work. You, you'd be a teacher, right? Or you could be a secretary. In my mother's case, she was a key punch operator, which is the people, you have this little machine and your job is to have seven, seven keys, this little machine with seven keys that punches holes in the computer cards, right? Because mm -hmm. that's how you used to program the computers um, with these cards. You'd have like a stack of these cards and you have to feed them into the machine. And you had people like my mother and their job was to uh, translate that into, you know, the holes, you know, so, but, you know, the machine would do it, right? You would, you would, you knew exactly what combinations made a, a letter A or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, for the computer. So she was a key punch operator. Um, but, you know, it was very hard for a single mother with a, you know, with a baby with, you know, no father, you know, with a, you know, a bastard baby. Because uh, my mom got her marriage annulled um, to um, to get work. So she sent me to Dominican Republic, you know, when I was, you know, before I was one years old so that she could work. And I was there until I was about five years old. Hmm. I was about five years old. The war broke out in Dominican Republic. You know, the U.S. sent troops. Uh, they were going to go uh, communist, right? So on one side, you had my uncle, who was the general, big general, Joselito Morillo Lopez, right? Mm -hmm. was the big general. And on the other side, we have Francisco, who was number two in number two in line, uh, number two in the Communist Party. It's <laughs> uh, a whole other story for another time. I don't want to digress into another story, but it's a, that's a really interesting story in itself. But he, um, um, uh, you know, so the war broke out, and my mother, my brother's father, which is the reason my mother loved him so much, gave up his whole life savings, everything that he had to get my mom to get me out of Dominican Republic, right? It's everything he had in the bank. He gave it to my mom. They hired people and they got me. So I, I came, I was about five, six years old. I came um, uh, to, you know, to the U.S. Um, when I got older, you know, uh, you know, my mom having two jobs, you know, the person who kind of raised me was my aunt. So this is my mom's older sister, uh, Anna, right, who sort of raised me more, especially in my teen years, because I left, I left home. I was about 12 or 13 and I moved in with Anna. And so Anna kind of raised me. So in lots of ways, she was my mother too. Right. And when Violet, my daughter was born, Right, we were living in the same building as her, and um, but like I said, both of us were very busy. My wife and I, my mom is watching my daughter. Um, I'm making the painting, and my aunt would um, said, you know, aunt, you know, bring your laundry, and bring your daughter's laundry because this is all my daughter's, you know, baby clothes. Bring your daughter's laundry. I'll, I'll um, wash it and fold it for you. So every Thursday. I would come down, you know, she would do the laundry and she'd sit there folding the clothes, folding the baby clothes. And mm. we would watch novella, TV novella, telenovelas together. Uh, and I started this painting out. This is, I did a, 
I began to, uh, at that time I was experimenting, I was beginning to feel um, uh, problems with painting and oil. I was getting sick from the turpentine. I didn't realize that if you just, that you can go solvent free, that oil is no more, no less toxic than watercolor. But at that time I didn't know it. So I did a, uh, a sketch um, in, in, and I have it somewhere over here. I did a, a um, using oil, you know, oil, uh, water, water-based oil colors, right? Water-soluble oils in our house. And then I did the painting, this painting from that sketch that I did. I think I have it over here. So this over here, if you want to show me for a second. Yeah. This right here. Oh yeah, back it away a little bit. Oh, it's oh no, it's you can bring it forward. It's fine. It's just the uh, internet connection's not amazing. That's you right? did the painting from that. Yeah. So so this I would bring my these are water soluble oils. Yeah. Which I hate, yeah. Right? We all do. And so <laughs> so I did the other painting from this, and you could see it's pretty close to to yeah. what I had. Yeah, but you've right? really managed to put more information in the original. Oh, yeah. Well, you know they're. You know, there, there's um, a lot of stuff. I mean, that stuff is easy. Like if I, if I, you know, I put in the folds for the, you know, for the thing, and then I made up the pattern on her. Mm -hmm. um, I set up, I set up the, the 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 still life of the clothes, and so because everything in here means something, right? So at the time when my aunt did this, she was a hundred years old. Oh my gosh, you got good genes. Yeah, and my daughter wasn't a year old so there are 100 they were exactly 100 years apart wow that right? is too cool so, <laughs> which is too cool right and so she was helping and so everything in here means something right so you see the light coming in the window you got the virgin right? mary back is, here <laughs> well, I'll, I'll explain that in a second so okay the, the lights coming in the window right mm -hmm. and it's either it's either sunrise or sunset right mm -hmm. and it's my daughter's clothes are sunrise and her she's sunset right hmm. so the light coming in is is that you know sunrise or sunset you don't you don't know what you can't tell which one it is right unless you know unless you know which way the building's been since this is sort of made up in the background right. right yeah right right um right but it's it's sunrise and sunset and that's what this is right um and uh the Virgin Mary. So this, this, she has the statue and I, I did this, uh, I set up the statue, but you know, I mean, it was like, it really literally like three or four strokes. So, mm -hmm. but I, I had it, you know, uh, my aunt, um, and I, I, you know, she let me borrow it. That statue was older than me, probably older than my mother. Hmm. It's always been in our house. It's, you know, the Virgin Mary and so that's a that's a symbol for her, right? She's always had that, and then you can't see it um, in the reproduction, but there's a police lock on the door because like we she were when I was living with her, we were in Harlem. Yeah, it's down here, a little bit lower. You can't see it. There's mm -hmm. a bar. It's a metal bar mm -hmm. that holds the door that props up against the door. Mm -hmm. We were living in we were living in Harlem, and. Um, you know, it was very dangerous. You know, her husband, Joe, you know, got mugged and beat up several times, shows up at the door bloody. But everybody in New York City at that time had three or four locks and a police lock. And the police lock is this metal bar 
that braces up against the door and then there's a hole in the floor is that this right that, here is right yeah here. that's that yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's pointing at her right the police Jeez. lock so this and so so everything has a little bit of a, a kind of, of way to live is that that's that's terrible and 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 in the back you see a little bit of a sofa right and you can tell you can barely tell i mean it's more for me but you can barely tell that it's got the plastic <laughs> covers over because it's pretty shiny I, yeah for my whole for my whole growing up i thought all sofas had a plastic line anytime i saw a sofa <laughs> that didn't have the plastic covering over it you know uh i thought i thought oh, i thought oh, well it, it, it would shock me because I grew up and like, I, and if you sit on it with like your underwears and your, your skin is on it, it like, it sticks to it when you go up, it was funny. but that's, that's, that's the, 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 the symbolism of there is, is trying to keep things new forever, you know, mm -hmm. trying to, it's, it's the passage of time. The plastic sofa keeps it from, from, from aging and her, and she did, I mean, her furniture that she had until the day she died was older than me you know much older than me and still looked brand new she still had an old vitrola her record player was one of those giant boxes you know mm -hmm. with, um, an old vitrola record player mm -hmm. she she managed to preserve her furniture for a long time and anyway that's the symbol for that is you know it's the passage time and, and we want to preserve our we want to preserve what we have right well, she, I imagine she wasn't making much money either when you were young. Oh, no, she wasn't. She, she, she's, she's an interesting case in herself. She's, you know, she, um, was a lady's garment. She, she was a seamstress and she, uh, one day I'm going through her stuff and we were getting ready to, uh, when we were clearing out her apartment, which my brother took over her apartment and is now, you know, that's now his studio. But um, when we were um, going through her stuff, we found the union card for the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, the first year that they were a union. She was a member. Hmm. The first year the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union was a union. Hmm. Like 1927 or something like that. Wow. Um, and and, and uh, so that, you know, that's that was, so she, she never made a lot of money. She was living off Social Security for you know, long time, you know, the, the apartment was government. It, it was in those days, it's now private, privately owned because it's out of the Mitchell Lama. But in those days it was a uh, government subsidized. Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so that's the story behind this one. Is there another one that this you one. in particular want to talk about? Yeah. Go keep going, uh, about the other way to the right. I'll keep going. We're next to my mother on the other side. Yeah. Hmm. So this is kind of like a family portrait, right? Uh, so that's my, my, oh, I see a Freudian slip. I almost said my mother, but that's my wife. <laughs> that's, that's my wife and Julian, my son, breastfeeding. And if he's, he was done from like, it's like, he's like five strokes, five brush strokes. Yeah. He's very simple. It's very simple. It just happened. They just painted itself like literally like 
he he was painted like I, I swear I kid you not like twenty minutes. Yeah. Um, and then you have my daughter, you have my brother on the other side of my wife with the New York City shirt, right? And then you have me uh, bringing my painting in. Originally, there was a baby carriage there, um, and there are some whips of this painting online where it's a baby carriage, but it was um, it wasn't right. I you know I wanted a different idea. And so this is about traveling, you know, you bring in your paintings and you see the New York City subway map and the, uh, you know, the train is stopped between stations um, for a light and uh, and there's a light from the workers. Now, the way this painting came about, the, the original seed for this painting and was I was visiting a friend up in, um, in uh, all the way up, in, you know, the, where the Dominican neighborhood is. What do you call it? Uh, Washington Heights, all the way up in Washington Heights. And I'm taking the A train down and it's a hot day and, and summer day and there's no uh, uh, air conditioning on that car, the particular car that I'm in. And it stops between tracks for the longest time. And there was a mother, a young Hispanic mother with a baby and the baby kept crying, crying. but it was the loudest, most piercing cry like you ever heard. Um, it was just really grating and you could see people combined with the heat of the car and the sweating and the baby though just won't stop crying and the poor mother trying to do everything she can to cry and the father next to next to her trying to you know do make faces at the baby trying to shake his hand trying to give them give the baby the uh, the bottled milk you know the bottled milk and the baby's just not having it just won't cry you know and so finally the girl just in, in her frustration, without any care for the fact that the train was full of people, just because of the, the, the way she was holding things and everything, she literally had to take off her shirt, pull out her breast, and just let it hang <laughs> out of the open for everybody to see while she grabbed her baby and latched the baby onto her breast. And the baby immediately stopped crying. And you can see... People almost applauded. Like they, they, they would. If one person had applauded, I, I, I bet you the whole train would have started applauding. <laughs> but, but she, she stopped, and I was like, wow, that's just amazing. There was nothing the father could do. There was no way the father was going to stop this baby, right? But the, the mother, she just did that. All right. So fast forward a week later, and we're walking around on a Sunday, um, in the neighborhood part of the neighborhood where everything is closed, and. We had forgotten to bring any milk or anything. And uh, Julian, my son, begins to cry really bad in, in, in the stroller. And we can't get him to stop. I try carrying him. He won't stop. You know, so finally my mother says, ah, I'm my mother. I keep saying my mother. My wife. <laughs> she is a mother. Uh, I get it. Yeah, she's a mother. <laughs> she's also the boss in the family. There's no <laughs> doubt. Right, you see, there's four of us there. Mm -hmm. I'm fourth in line of I'm fourth in line of power. <laughs> I, I I used to be fifth, but the cat died. <laughs> promotion, right? But anyway, so my wife stops and she sits down in the middle of the street. She did almost the exact same thing as this young woman did. She pulled out her breast and put the baby on, and he stopped. And he said, it's, "I just always like I got to do a painting about this um, because I think." It's just an amazing thing what what power that women have and a lot of my 
work is about the matriarch, right? Respect for the matriarch. And because, you know, as Latinos, uh, and it's a very a theme in my brother's work too, you know, is the mother, right? We were raised by strong mothers and all of my friends, none of them had fathers, right? And all my brother's friends, none of them had fathers, right? Just because of the way the situation is, not because anybody's a deadbeat or anything like that. And it's just, it's just that the way it happens um, in this country, right? Um, so none of us, you know, had fathers. And so we were all raised by very strong mothers. And my mother, for instance, was a very, uh, you know, she's tough. She did everything that she could do to, to make money, uh, you know, or, 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 or to get us through and to get those things that we needed, even though, she, you know, she wasn't making that much money. And so I'm always, my paintings are always have this respect for the matriarch, the the powerful mother you know, seen from a man's point of view, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like I'm a voyeur, almost like I'm a voyeur. <laughs> um, totally giving in to the, you know, to that, the, the feeling of helplessness we have compared to, you know, to our, our the, the mothers of our babies when we're, you know, um, you know, when it comes to raising the, the, our, our, our kids. So every, uh, that's a big running, running theme. And, and I think it's one that I think I'm going to explore even more. As I told you earlier, that I'm looking to explore what's next. Yeah, I hope and you I do. I was going to try. And I hope you don't listen yeah, to that gallery. I think the this personal aspect of your work is one of its biggest strengths. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and to your point about uh, mothers too, you know, I grew up very differently. I had a very traditional family. My dad is a good man, strong man. He was home. I mean, he, he, I, he was always there and my mom was a stay home yeah. mom. She never worked. She worked in the home. We were poor too, not quite the same situation, but so she would do daycare in order to fill in the gaps. So we, there was always other babies around, you know, so our house was a zoo, but, but, but I, I mean, my experience was, was the same in that my mother was the, was the rock in the house. The rock always the rock like she's where the buck stopped you know yep yeah so i can i that's I'm, how it is yeah even in a traditional yeah, that's home how it like is that. now yeah well i mean my the home now right mm -hmm. you know it's uh, you know my wife is the rock she is you know she's the strength she's she holds it all together it's amazing how she does it and, and what she does, right? Um, it's just, you know, uh, it, it, it's just, you know, mother is the rock. It's, it's in, 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 in our family and, and in my family, my brother, it was as well. Hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, this is great. So, um, what else would you like to look at? Is there anything in particular? Um, so there is, uh, Oh yeah, so all the way over three from the left. I'll show you one. Keep going all the way over that one, right? Oh, this, so one, this, this one's a little small. That's okay. Uh, it's yeah, a little so blurry. What, so what this is, is I did this when I was 16, so, so 17 years old from life. And- uh, Wow, 17? Yeah. Good and it's four you, feet man. by four feet. And that's um, Max as a as a 39 year old he was our high school teacher and this was the 
a painting that I did in high school of that of the high school art class. That is so cool. All from life. Do you still um, have it? So I just I don't have it. It's, that's up at the High School of Art and Design. So you have access to it. You can see it. I can see it, except that I I hate when I see it because, um, you know, of course I'm I'm using cheap paints in those days, and in those days I had just recently <laughs> when I did this painting, I had just recently learned about Verdaccio, right? Um, can you, know, you explain you, that? A green, a green uh, tone, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like to your to your you're painting on a dark green tone like some of the early renaissance masters right and so it's verdaccio verde verde is is uh, latin for green for green or something like that so verdaccio is this green under you know uh priming you prime it this green color and there's a problem with pentimento right and pentimento is a tendency of oil paints to get transparent over time, uh, they you know they they do. And no matter how good the, the 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 quality is, oil paint gets transparent over time. And in this case, these were cheap paints. Uh, so when I see it now, I almost want to cry because it's like it's dark and it's green. Oh, bummer! And thank goodness, thank goodness, Max took these photos. Several of us did murals. You know, Garen Baker did one as well. Um, hmm. And Max took these photos. He got these professionally done. So this is from a slide. This is a scan from a slide. Uh, but it's when the, when when the painting was still fresh and and beautiful, the color, all the way on the on the right hand side, uh, washing his brushes is my was my best friend Mark Texera, hmm. who was an amazing painter. Probably Max still calls him the best draftsman he's ever had. But then he went on. He went on to comic books hmm. and he's responsible for the ghost rider and stuff. And he gets like thousands of people when he goes to Comic-Con, you know, sitting at his coming to his, to get him to sign stuff, even though he's kind of retired from comics now. That's um, interesting. It's like a little Renaissance yeah. in that high school. It was amazing. It was an amazing, it was an amazing time. So anyway, hmm. so this was all from everything is from life, the still life, the, the thing in that. So that that's, is, that's, uh, that is too cool. Well, I want to look at this one because it's uh, one that we can really look at how you paint. And maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about how you approach painting. Um, so, yeah. So, so this one, um, a little background on this one. Um, this was actually a sketch for... The other one that has me, the other self-portrait of me, that's two to the right of that. The mm -hmm. other way, yeah. Oh, right? this way, right here. Um, and yeah. Um, so obviously you I chose decided, a different head, yeah. <laughs> I, I chose a different angle, right? Right, uh, right. Both of these are done with mirrors. Um, okay. In fact, uh, there's an article for this one. There's an article in... Um, uh, you know, uh, international artist magazine, right? Mm -hmm. um, where I show my whole mirror setup. I did this. There's three mirrors. You know, uh, two two side by side, kind of like the way you do in a fitting room, mm -hmm. and then one on a tripod so that I could get my eyes looking down. Jeez. Right? And so the other one, the the, the the head, was originally I was going to do myself leaning up against the wall, uh, uh, doing that. Is it was. It was 
it was um well there's there's a story behind this you know the this is from a story you know the parents lost their child and so you know this loss is called loss and you're thinking about the loss of a child which i is something i can't even bear to imagine um but I had to do this painting because I was so moved by a certain loss. And so I ended up doing the other one where he's looking down. Uh, and that's a whole other story, I think, beyond the scope of today's talk, because that'll put bring another half hour to this, <laughs> which I think is already. Um, but this one, um, so that's what this one is. And so I had a mirror, I had a mirror uh, above me and a mirror below me. Hmm. Right. And so I'm looking at the mirror above, which is looking at the mirror below. And um, um, in those days, I was using, you know, one of David Cassand's uh, parallel palettes, mm -hmm. right? So you could put the palette up on a tripod, right? Mm -hmm. Paint. Um, um, I think I, I think I was using that then. Right? In any case, there's a mirror above and a mirror below, and it's kind of funny this painting came about really fast because it was meant to be a sketch it wasn't even meant to be a finished painting but the way i the way i think about painting is i i think about four stages i think about it as if you're building a house and and on a side note i'm completely solvent free these days i don't use any solvents um, and it's the best thing that i could have done hmm. um, it took me a while to figure out how to be solvent free because you know you find all these articles online, uh, they only tell you, oh yeah, use walnut oil or use linseed oil, you know, you can, but they don't tell you how to actually paint that way. And uh, the way I figured it out was when I went to um, the unfinished show with Bert Silverman, mm -hmm. walking around and everything, you know, I discovered I had discovered that solvents are relatively new. They're in 1850. What before that. No yeah, way. It's 1850. Thanks to Windsor Newton, right? No, it's, seriously. Know, it coincides with, yeah. I have no idea. Before, yeah, before I did, before that, nobody used them. It's all those Rembrandt, beautiful Rembrandt. I, I prefer, you know, the 17th century, anyways. Yeah. All those beautiful Rembrandts, all those beautiful Vermeers, Rubens, they're all painted solvent free. And you see the black ends are very different than you start seeing later like with turner and some of the other ones in the unfinished show um, um you have to do the under you have to do the underpainting with the paint as it comes out of the, the, the right of the of the tube you know kind of like a dry brush effect all right so this is just as i'm beginning to go there mm -hmm. and um, i mean it, it, you can clean your brush between strokes just using linseed oil and you wipe it off and it's great it's a fantastic way of working and probably more sound anyway so i think of 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 a painting the way you're building a house there's four stages and you know the first stage is like the framework of the house you see when you have all the two by fours lined up right and that's the block in right mm -hmm. and for the block in you know i i'm only thinking about the proportions, the composition, and the light and dark. And I'm thinking of the light and dark just as flat shapes. I'm not doing the whole sphere and you know and 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 the egg shape for the for the ribs and a box for I'm just thinking of flat shapes. Um, and 
when we think about it, that's what a camera sees, right? Mm -hmm. A camera, you like, uh, just sees flat shapes, something and the flat shapes of the light and the dark. The, um, one of the things that I, you know, that, uh, that I've come to discover is, and, and is that you can't really paint the nose. You can't really paint lips. You can sculpt the nose, right? Mm -hmm. But you can really only paint the, the shapes that the light makes. Right. Right. So in the beginning, in the very beginning, it's just the flat shapes. Um, and what that does is that it gives you superpowers. And, and if I'm painting solvent free, I have to be a lot more accurate. I can't, um, I can't like, I don't have the luxury of being able to just wipe out so easily like I did when I had solvents. So I have to be more methodical and more accurate, which is great. Take makes me take time. Right. But painting, thinking, of the block in as just flat shapes. It's not even a person. It's just the flat shape that the light makes and the flat shape that the dark makes. Thinking about that way, you get all kinds of superpowers, right? Um, you get to measure, right? Because whenever you're measuring heads, you say you're doing a figure, you say, oh, it's seven and a half heads. You have to think of the figure as flat in order to do that, don't you? Mm -hmm. Right? So you, you have measure, you can find halfway points, you can find like sizes, angles, triangles, blowing lines, negative shapes. You can do all kinds of things that you can't if you're starting out thinking like this structural, sculptural thing. That's the first pass, it's the blocking. The second pass is the dead color layer where it's still not a person to me, but I'm beginning to think in terms of uh, uh, planes and you know masses. And I think about it as if I'm um, uh, putting up um, drywall, your, your house, this is the part of the house, you're putting drywall up onto that frame. And so when I, when I get the dead color layer, that's my chance to experiment with color. I only have six colors on my palette. Um, I mostly only use three of them. Um, what colors are they, if, if you remember off the top of your head? Yeah, so I have titanium white, I have cadmium yellow light, I have cadmium orange, Cadmium red, magenta, viridian, and ultramarine blue. That's it. Hmm. And um, and so the, the you know the the dead color layer you get to experiment what you need to mix right because we want to get the person you're painting in this light with this environment because the environment has a lot to do with the color, right? So the same person under different situations you'll mix different colors different color skin tones. And so let me before um, before you finish that thought, I'm thinking about your color palette. So you've all you've got all reds and oranges, all warms and one blue. Am I did I get I that have wrong? two blues. Two I have blues. two blues. Oh, yeah, Viridian is a blue. Oh I forgot I think the Viridian. Viridian. Right, the Viridian. Okay. Yeah. Viridian is a blue. You, two you, blues. you add white to it. And it becomes like so it becomes like cyan, right? When you add white to Viridian. Right. And so right. basically what I have is yep. RGB. Two yellows, right? two reds, two blues. Yeah, so I have RGB and I have uh, cyan, magenta, and, uh, and cyan, magenta, and yellow, right? Mm. Yeah, so I have two, but uh, I, I used to have cadmium yellow medium instead of orange, but then I figured, you know, I might as well just push it all the way. Mm -hmm. But most of my paintings are done with you know, it's just the cadmium yellow light, 
the cadmium red or magenta and the blue hmm. right the blue really you know it, it's it's amazing how how flexible and how powerful that color palette is um uh it's you can really really i don't know if you've seen the video if you look at if you ever get a moment i posted it on instagram uh, where i took my my little my little palette and i mixed like 30 different colors that everybody swears by you know you know all the you know burnt sienna and uh, lead tin yellow and cerulean blue and even cadmium red light and i matched them exactly mm-hmm. uh, with my palette right now my feeling is if you can make the color then you probably don't need it on your palette except for convenience right right uh, because they make the colors why not have them right um, right. If they make the colors, why not? But I, but I don't I don't need them. Um, it takes longer to mix the colors, but it's worth it. You learn what your colors do, mm-hmm. right? And then if you have more colors, it becomes a luxury, not a necessity. So like I have other colors. Every once in a while, I might squeeze out something of something else, um, but rarely, rarely do I ever need it. And it's usually with really bright prismatic matic colors that you can't get to you know what i mean mm-hmm. have to uh, that you have to get you have to you just can't mix like for instance if you know have you ever seen nelson shank's painting of lentine price that's at the national portrait gallery is a woman in red dress under stage theater lights um his son told me that um he bought 12 different kinds of reds for that painting <laughs> So, you know, so there are certain situations where, okay, you might have to, you know, supplement the color, but generally you don't need it. I don't, I find that I don't need it. And, and you get better at mixing. At first it's tough, but then it's, it, then it's like, you know, the colors are super, superfluous. Right. Um, but, but the, 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 now this, this, um, this, uh, uh, image, you know, is more garish than my than my actual painting it's not you know those yellows aren't so harsh as it is in the painting mm. as an essence i remember it wasn't done as a finish it was done as a sketch as a portrait sketch <laughs> and then I, I kept it right um yeah anyway but, but but this um so that's the second I'm, I'm putting up the planes i'm thinking of you know the walls it's like you're putting up the walls but you, you said know, they're in dead in color does that mean they're sort of low chroma no i i call it i call it the dead color meaning that that color is going to go under it's going to get oh that's the only reason they're not gray or it's anything. going to get buried okay yeah. so but it's a, it's a good opportunity to try out sometimes you you let that color come through but it's a good opportunity to try out what you got to mix right? okay um and I think of the planes because everything is either a curved surface or a flat surface or the transitions between them. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 it's like I'm building up the drywall. Then the next stage three is the development layer, right? And the development layer is where you buckle down and you start somewhere, usually the focal point, and you don't move until you get that to where you want it. Now it's, and, and at this stage, see the second stage you're thinking of it, it's, it's like, it's like this jewelry box or something that you're putting together, you know, the planes mm-hmm. or you're putting up the walls. In the third stage, you're beginning to think about cultural, the structure, right? Like the head is a ball, the nose is a ball, the, 
top of the nose is a cylinder, you know, the head is a block, is side plane, front plane, mm -hmm. things like that. And, in, in, you know, and you start thinking about what's happening sculpturally, what, what's coming towards you, how far does it come towards you, how far does it go away? You're thinking in depth as well, right? So you're thinking Z. So like in the first, the first pass, you're just thinking X, Y coordinates, you know, sideways, up and down. Now by the third pass, you're fully thinking how deep does this feel like it's going? So you're thinking in the Z space as well. And you're thinking about the modeling and, 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 and you know, you're being a sculptor, right? Mm -hmm. And then the fourth pass is what I call, and I grab it from the CG artists, and I call it the beauty pass. And the beauty pass is where now it's a, it's a real person, right? Mm -hmm. Up until then, up until then, it's 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 first just a collection of shapes, and then it's a collection of forms, right? And then it's a real person, and it's a real piece of art. So now you, you the fourth pass involves a lot of looking. There's not much fourth pass in this, but there is some, right? There's some uh, glazing, you know, that you go in, you add a little, oh, you want to make the you know the cheek a little bit redder to make it look like him. I wanted to add strengthen the highlight in the eye so it looks more like he's crying. Um, you know, the you you look at the background color, is that right? You know, or you, you darken up a whole area, you lighten a whole area. You know, it involves a lot of staring and deciding, you know, how to make it art, how to make it a person, how to make, how, is it getting the message that you're trying to, sometimes you have to simplify. Sometimes you take an area that you really worked out and you say, oh, no, you know what? I can do this better at two strokes, two brush strokes. But once you've done it, once you've developed it and done all that detail, to simplify it is much is much easier. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I, I think the beauty pass is because, in the end, you know we're trying to make it art. And one of the things that I tell my students, um, is that it's not enough for the strokes to be the right size, the right value, the right color, the right shape, in the right place. They got to be beautiful too. And what's beautiful? I don't know. That's your job as an artist to show us what beauty is, right? What's beautiful to you, the way you put that is beautiful, is different for somebody else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's got to be beautiful to you. You. That's where it starts. You got to make the strokes that you would, that, that you say, wow, this is beautiful to me, right? Um, keeping in mind that there's no such thing as there's no absolute, right? That, right. That that's your job to hold up what you think is beautiful to us. And if it means doing this whole painting with a Brillo pad, and so be it, right? Or all sables, you know, or, or all bristles or, or whatever, right? It, it's up to you to make a case for it. That's, you know, that's the freedom. That's what we have as, an, as, as artists. Um, and, and what a great job. Right. What mm -hmm. a great job we have um, to hold up what's beautiful. And, and then I like to take it even further than beauty and, and say, you know, the painting, we should strive for the sublime, sublime. And, and I learned that from the track 2016, I think it was, with uh, Zamir Zeki, who gave this big talk. Zamir Zeki was a neuroscientist who gave a talk about how art affects your brain. Um, um, and he talked about the sublime and he called it beauty on steroids. 
And so you think of beauty like this beautiful bouquet of flowers. The sublime is something like Hamlet, right? Where you not only are impressed by the beauty, but it leaves you thinking and it stays with you. Um, hmm. Like I remember reading War and Peace and it still has still stayed with, when I was in my 20s. It stayed with me all these years. I still feel those characters. I still think I know them. Right, mm. I think that's what the sublime is. Just Hamlet, when both from the audience and from the and from the actor, you know, the audience is looking at Hamlet and crying, crying their tears out, yet thoroughly enjoying it, and then thinking about the and the artist at the same time. The actor is performing how, you know, on the outside, he's breaking apart because of the death of Ophelia and. Uh, you know, on the inside, he's thoroughly enjoying his pain, right? Mm -hmm. That's my definition, or at least Amir Zeki's, which I've adopted, right? Definition of the sublime, right? So the goal, I don't know if I've ever reached it, you know, but I try, right? That's the goal is to try, whether you reach it or not, mm -hmm. is that everything that we do, every, every, every inch, like even, you know, even the haphazard marks, on the background right even as you're doing them they're thought about they're thought out. i love the sloppy look you know that's from my love of the abstract expressionists um, i love that slacky look but the, you know they're they're not just thrown away i don't you know i'm thinking about how i'm putting them down in a way that's interesting right because yeah. i think that's the one rule with all of this every rule can be broken but the one rule is make it an interesting compelling image right make it something mm -hmm. somebody wants to look at and and even that rule could be broken when you think about the minimalists who made things interesting by just making one thin line on a six-foot canvas hmm. make it interesting right make it make it um make it fun to look at hmm. i think it's the best is it is is my advice right not yeah. saying the best advice or this is the way everybody should do it or should handle it uh but this is what i I'm striving for it's not enough. That's that's my idea. It's not enough for it to be in the right place, the right shape, right value. It should be beautiful too, beautifully applied and interesting. And, and in my case, interesting means, and it could be different for anybody else, right? In my case, interesting is varied and different strokes and different applications, using the blush at a low angle, using it at a high angle, thick and thin. And, sometimes glazed and sometimes impasto, you know, um, all of that stuff is what makes it interesting for me. For other people, you know, it could be doing the whole painting with a triple zero brush. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's no, there's only you, there's what you think. And that's where you start. And if you believe in it, people will, you'll find other people that believe in you. I, I, I guarantee you, you gotta make the paintings. And you like you that's know. good advice you know and that speaking of advice before we close the podcast i want to ask you one final question and that is for aspiring artists what advice would you give them um i, I think the advice that i believe Adnedrum would have given me really? that i had the guts to meet, meet with them and that would be Stick to your guns, make the paintings, make the paintings 
that you love that you would buy right and develop the skill to make the paintings i think where regardless of what anybody tells you there's all these rules fibonacci and all that stuff that people i think of them as ideas that that give you certain feelings as a painting take them and use them i think every every great work of art has three things um and i call them the three c's and keep this in mind right the first c is character it's your point of view character is the, your point of view right people need to know how they see you what is your point of view and how is it different and how is it interesting you know why are you doing this painting why are you why are you taking five weeks out of your life and the life and your time with your kids to do a painting right why are you doing that you know what is your point of view what are you trying to say rather than be all over the place what's important to you if it's really important to you it will be important to other people that's one the second is conflict right nobody writes a book about nothing conflict you make it interesting i think you now conflict can be the subject matter it can be the painting the composition and it can be even the artist himself when you think about van gogh a lot of our love of van gogh is the conflict in his own life that we we respond to I mean, not including his this conflict in his painting that's beautiful right but the you know you know you can find visual conflict. You can find conflict in the subject matter. If you make a bunch of lines this way, make some this way or cross. A bunch of straight curved lines, make a straight line. A bunch of squares, make some circles. A lot of big shapes, little shapes. Find the conflict, light, dark, warm, cool, red, blue, you know, red, green, right? Find the conflict, play with it, right? Um, you know, you have a lot of painting that's mostly red and then you have a little dab of, some muted green it's beautiful or vice versa right you find a conflict conflict is drives the world it makes the painting interesting and then the third is confidence right develop the technique to make the paintings that you want to do whatever that is right then time working on the technique this is skill-based art right but even if you're not you know you can't no argument can be made that that Jackson Pollock wasn't confident with those drips. Like every once in a while, you see somebody making fun of him, doing drips and saying, oh, look, I can do a Jackson Pollock. But there's something that's missing. There's a confidence that Jackson Pollock has, right? Um, the confidence is what you go, you, the teacher gives you, right? What you go to classes, what you do life drawing from. Develop the confidence to make the paintings you want to make, that you want to make. If it's painterly, it's great. If it's every single pore, that's just as great. It's it's all it's all valid, but you gotta love it. No, I think of painting as if it's a if it's a vehicle, right? Or art in general. It's a vehicle, right? You have the vehicle has a motor and it has doors, right? The motor is what the subject's about. There's all the conflict. It's 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 what the painting is about. The motor takes you places, right? By the same token, the door are the beautiful aesthetics of the of the painting. If you walk by a painting that's not that's just doesn't attract you, that's not compelling. It doesn't matter how how good it is, the subject, 
to walk by it. It's a car. If you have a car, you could have the most beautiful outside, the most beautiful doors in the world, and easy to get in. You get in the car, right? And it has no motor. It's not taking you anywhere. It's painting just for the sake of beauty. By the same token, right, you could have, you know, the most powerful engine in the world capable of driving, you know, a freight train and it's beautiful and chrome. If the car has no doors, it's still not taking you anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So these three C's help you find that, you know, confidence, character, and conflict, right? That's the main, the, the one thing that I think all great art has. Um, it has those three things, you know. When I mm -hmm. think of Rembrandt, if I say Rembrandt, you know exactly where it's come, coming from. If I say Picasso, if I say Vermeer, if I say de Kooning, every single one of those artists, you're clear who they are. And if somebody tries to paint like Rembrandt, you say, oh, this person's painting like Rembrandt. Right. Or this person is trying to paint like Rubens. Right? But I say Rubens, you have a clear idea of what that is. That's character. That's character. When I say Jeff, Jeff Hines, I know exactly what that is. I recognize your painting. People, 20 people, 300 people will pose, post and they'll say one is Jeff Hines. I guarantee you, I'll, I'll pick yours out. Because I know, I see, you have very, you're very clear in who you are as an artist and how you paint, what you paint, how you apply the strokes, all of that is clear. That's character. Who are you? Right? Like I said, the rest, you know, confidence. There's no doubt for in your case that you have confidence. I mean, you've developed your technique to an amazing level, right? You have tremendous amount of confidence in your work. You know if you're gonna give a de demo that you'll be able to do whatever you need to do, right? And conflict, that's all the stuff that we learned, the composition for, all that stuff fits into that. Rule of thirds, discovered light, Fibonacci series, you know, alternation, all that stuff that we learn about composition, right? That's all in the conflict. Hmm. It's, it's, it's all a way of creating conflict, of creating. And, and what's kind of, when you look at a Rembrandt and he does alternation, in other words, the light, dark, light, dark, like train tracks going in the background, right? He's making us take this two-dimensional piece and letting us, making us feel this three-dimensional, like you're walking through it. That's conflict, mm -hmm. right? Alternation is a way of finding conflict. Almost everything, warm, cool, you know, theory, that's a way of finding conflict. All those, the, the, those, those ideas, right? Uh, balance or imbalance. Yeah, I like that. You know, I've always I've always defined great art as three things as well. And it's interesting how much they overlap with your definition. And mine are concept, design and craftsmanship. Yeah. Um, but they really overlap quite well, although I like the you way overlap. you put it. I like the way you put it because it opens up more of a discussion in it. Um, it's yours is much more of a broad definition that opens itself up to interpretation a little bit more. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, like you, you say, what, what is craft? Right. Um, you know, like, you no, know, if we're looking at, you know, we look at, say compare Bouguereau to Sargent, right. Two are different ideas of what craft in a painting is. Right. Well, so confidence yeah. is a great, alternative confidence to that. i like that i like that that's beautiful 
Well, hey, man, dude, I love talking to you. I hope to see you at the Me Porch too. Society next year. I'm going to try to make it. It's been tough these last years, but I'm going to try. I hope so. But yeah, it's always fun and hanging out with you. So I appreciate this conversation. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week. Thank you.